For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Eva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. An initiative petition getting ready for signature gathering could allow Oklahomans to vote in support of abortion access. State question 828 allows regulation of abortions after point of fetal viability, but the state couldn't prohibit later abortions deemed necessary by a medical professional to protect the pregnant person's life, physical or mental health. Ryan, what do you think of this ballot initiative? Well, I think this probably won't be the only reproductive rights ballot initiative that Oklahomans may be able to consider in the next coming years. Um, I think another one has already been filed. I don't know a lot about or really anything about these groups that are filing these. I know that there are a number of groups uh, in Oklahoma that are looking at doing something very similar. Um, and I do think that it will have a res- that it will resonate with a lot of Oklahoma voters. Um, you know, the idea that uh, abortion is, you know, all the way on the left or all the way on the right just doesn't really play out for most Oklahomans. For most Oklahomans, it's, it's a much messier issue. It's, it's very complicated. It's very nuanced. It's very personal. And that's where I think that uh, these ballot measures are going to resonate with Oklahoma voters kind of across the spectrum. Uh, we saw some polling late last year that suggested that even Republican voters, likely voters, they didn't, dis- they, they didn't agree with the extreme bans on abortion that the state of Oklahoma had passed. And I think Republican lawmakers for years have been pushing um, you know, limits on reproductive freedom in the state of Oklahoma. And until recently, most of the time, they were joined by Democrats uh, in doing that. Um, you know, Democrats have, have you know, switched on that a lot in the, the legislature in, in recent past. But you know, I think that they were able to do that and not face any of the consequences, any of the fallout, any of the public health crises, because there was a constitutional backstop. Now that that's gone, I think that the issue is going to become more nuanced and whether it's through an initiative or maybe even through some legislation, I think we're going to see over the next few years, the extreme limits on abortion in the state of Oklahoma begin to peel away. Neva. Well, I think it's interesting. First of all, I'm always struck by the fact that Oklahoma was the first state uh, to uh, provide for the initiative or referendum process of provisions in the Constitution back in 1907. And and this really is direct democracy. This is an opportunity for uh, voters for citizens to uh, bring an issue to the forefront. And there is this process outlined in Article 5 of our Constitution that allows for them to uh, file the paperwork, uh, to go through the process with the Secretary of State, uh, and then to begin the signature process. And I thought it was interesting in this instance with this state question, um, which will be 828, I believe, Mm -hmm. it does... um, uh, it kind of flew under the radar because they filed the paperwork about a week before the uh, general election, mm-hmm. and then they've just come out of the uh, uh, kind of the time frame for any protests, and apparently there haven't been any, or, um, or at least I'm not aware of any, that have been filed. So it does kind of clear the runway for them to be given the clock to start and get this 175,000 or so signatures in 90 days. And I think um, I think the question easily and quickly will become, who is the group doing this? How well-funded are they? Because as we talk about in any state question, any initiative, uh, it, it requires resources to get, mm-hmm. the, get the message out. Uh, typically nowadays, uh, it requires uh, paid, uh, organized uh, uh, operations to be able to just collect the signatures, do them in a way, and do them in the time frame prescribed. So um, we'll see a lot of, you know, certainly I think see a lot of activity uh, around this. And as you say, Ryan, there may be others. And, and this is, uh, interestingly, the legislature putting forth uh, referenda that uh, are on the ballot. There have been many, many, I think 400 or something, you know, I think is the 
uh, the total number, but when we talk about this type of an initiative, they tend to be much more difficult and they have been fewer in terms of successful. And so we'll have to see what the uh, what the political landscape really looks like. I mean, people can talk about their preferences or views on a subject, but following through and getting them to go to the ballot and um, mark the box the way <laughs> the, the way the uh, advocates or proponents are wanting is a much uh, much steeper hill to climb. Oftentimes, and, and we're a long way from the ballot. I mean, they need to collect over 170,000 signatures. That's not cheap uh, to be able to do that. We collected with 820. It cost over $2 million to collect 170,000 signatures, of which 117,000 thereabouts were declared valid uh, or acceptable for the Secretary of State's office. So it's a tremendous amount of expense. I know that lawmakers every year talk about how citizens can just willy-nilly put these things on the ballot. And it just, that's a representative opioture uh, phrase, by the way, <laughs> uh, throwback. Um, but, you know, they, they talk about how these things can just get on the ballot so easy, but it's, it's very difficult. And so not only to get on the ballot, and they were very lucky to pass through the protest period without anybody raising a protest mm-hmm. because legal expenses there are quite significant uh, or can be. And so, yeah, I think that it's a long ways to getting on the ballot. They said that they want to be on the March 7th ballot. I think that's kind of a pipe dream. Uh, you know, even though I'd, I'd love to see Oklahomans have an opportunity to vote on reproductive rights, I doubt that it's going to be on the March 7th ballot. There's, there would have to be something really remarkable. They'd have to collect all these signatures in a month. It would have to be a perfect, yeah, it, it would yeah. have to be almost a flawless of the 90 uh, days. Pro- yeah. operation for 90 days. And, and that's been a, uh, I think anyone would be skeptical that they could meet that deadline. The U.S. Senate approved a same-sex marriage bill after rejecting an amendment from Oklahoma Senator James Lankford. Lankford says his amendment was intended to shield religious organizations from adverse actions for opposing same-sex marriage. While the final measure passed with 12 Republicans joining Democrats, neither Lankford nor outgoing Senator Jim Inhofe were among them. Neva, what are your thoughts on this legislation? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, in this instance, it wasn't a straight party line vote. There were 12 Republicans that joined the 49 Democrats on this particular issue. But our two uh, United States senators from Oklahoma uh, uh, voted against uh, voted against the measure. And I think uh, Senator Lankford, I mean, one of the comments he made, I think, in the, in the debate was uh, his statement something to the effect of it is today about respecting the rights of all or is it about uh, silencing some and respecting others and I think that became really the um, the real framework for the debate back and forth and and clearly there are two points of view on this uh, the uh, respect for marriage act as this was called uh, repealed the defense for marriage act which uh, was passed by congress back in 1996 and in essence uh, what it did was define marriage as between a man and a woman and and denied uh, federal benefits to uh, uh, to any other uh, married couples so um, I, you know, I think there's a lot of other conversation that kind of is the backdrop to all of this about many in Cong- many in Congress, particularly Democrats, believing that the the current U.S. Supreme Court will move uh, very aggressively potentially on some other issues, and this seemed to be a, a kind of a last ditch effort uh, here at the uh, uh, the end of. Uh, uh, the year before they leave for the holidays to uh, try to put some of these uh, put some of these things forward very quickly. So obviously, political landscape changing in Washington, not totally, but uh, I think with the House uh, uh, certainly changing, I think that uh, this was the activity that we've seen here in recent days. Ryan, yeah, you know, I think first I, I want to acknowledge just how remarkable this is uh, that in 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act, Bill DOMA, uh, that everybody called it. Uh, that was signed by a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, 
Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. Here we are in 2022, and you've got 12 Senate Republicans joining Democrats to pass legislation that protects the rights of gay people to be married and to have their marriages recognized across state borders. Um, and I also want to point out some of the backdrop of this. Uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin, who's the, the first openly gay uh, woman in the United States Senate from Wisconsin. Uh, uh, and she's, she really kind of spearheaded this effort to get Republicans to come over and support this piece of legislation. And one of the key things that she did was that she stood up to uh, some more progressive members of the Democratic caucus who wanted this to be voted on prior to the election to put, Demo- to put Republican senators in a difficult position electorally on this issue. And she said, no, she said, I, I feel like I can get more. Uh, she's, she was thinking 10. They ended up with 12 uh, senators t- from the Republican caucus to come over and join us. But we've got to wait until after the election. So they didn't make it an election year issue the way that some might have wanted it to. And I think that that led to this really historic vote uh, that we were able to get folks to you know, lay down their swords after the election and come and pass this. I think that uh, Senator Lankford's concerns about religious liberty and religious freedom, I think that they're unfounded. Uh, this legislation was a product of compromise. You know, there's, there are serious protections in this legislation that ensure churches, universities, other nonprofit religious organizations won't lose their tax-exempt status or other benefits for refusing to recognize same-sex marriages, and they could not be required to provide services for the celebration of any marriage. That's, that's still going to be, you know, states can pass those laws, they can be tested in courts, but, um, you know, this isn't Congress mandating that. So, and that was a product of, of real negotiation and brought over folks like Senator Mitt Romney, who is you know, probably the most devout member of, of any faith in the United States Senate. Uh, you know, I, I'd put him, I'll take the Pepsi challenge on, on relig- religious devotion with Mitt Romney any day. Uh, and he came over and he said, this protects religious liberty and it recognizes the respect and equality that Americans, regardless of who they love or who they want to marry, uh, in a way that is part of who we are as, as America right now in 22. Well, in this amendment uh, by Senator Langford, it only failed by seven votes. So it was, it was in my uh, view, very evenly split. And when you look at uh, really what that amendment said, he all he was um, asking for in the amendment was to clarify that, that faith-based groups uh, with a traditional view of marriage uh, would uh, be able to that, and those that provide contracts, such as state contracts for services, would not be sued for discrimination, would not be deemed uh, state actors, uh, and that the proposal basically uh, really was a backstop so that there isn't unnecessary and contentious litigation. And I think that's still a question that will be out there: is uh, what will come. Many argued that that, uh, including some Republicans, as you say, Ryan, that supported the bill. They contended that they had all of these religious uh, uh, protections in place. I think there is still clearly a difference of opinion on that, and we'll see how uh, that um, how that evolves uh, through time now that this has passed. I think it's interesting to look at you know, the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas was the one in his dissenting opinion, or in his opinion, in the uh, the uh, the, de- the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, um, you know, he was the one who said that they should go back and revisit other unenumerated rights that have been recognized throughout uh, the last several decades by the United States Supreme Court. And I think that that's what sent up the red flags for folks, and, and, and rightly so. Um, but I do think that when you look at the fact that we as a nation have moved to the fact uh, to the point where you can get 12 Senate Republicans to come over. The idea that we could get 12 Senate Republicans to come over on anything that would recognize the, the protections afforded by Roe v. Wade in federal law, that's just impossible uh, to think of right now. And I think in part because we've had this dynamic where abortion rights were frozen in time in 1972 and then slowly eroded away over the, the subsequent decades. And the, the gay rights movement really began from a democratic perspective. 
And so by the time the Supreme Court got gay marriage, most Americans had come around to it, and there were large majorities that supported it. So I, I think that, um, I don't want to say that it's unfounded that the Supreme Court could take that away. I think it's less uh, worrisome than it was with abortion rights. But even then, if you're an American, if you're, if you're married, and you see at least one Supreme Court justice, one out of nine, uh, saying that your rights could be taken away, your marriage could be in jeopardy, it's a good thing that Congress acted. The Department of Justice is opening an investigation in Oklahoma over discrimination against people with behavioral health disabilities. The DOJ announced the sweeping probe of the state's mental health system along with treatment of people in Oklahoma City and its police department. Ryan, what's prompted this inquiry? Well, it, it came from the Center for Disabilities Law uh, and the American Civil Liberties Union of Oklahoma. They filed a complaint with the Department of Justice. I don't know a lot about the particulars of that. DOJ hasn't uh, shared what the specific allegations are, although they said that they are very credible. Um, when you look at our population in jail and prisons in the, around the state of Oklahoma, it's not difficult to see that they're overrepresented by people that have mental health situations, mental health uh, mental health issues, uh, you know, disabilities, you know, things that are protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and are we institutionalizing people? Are we putting people in prison and jail instead of giving them the treatment that they deserve? Are we looking at mental illness and criminalizing it rather than treating it? And I think that that's a really serious question that Oklahomans need to face. I think lawmakers and even the people of Oklahoma over the last several years have, have recognized that we incarcerate far too many people and that it's not good for us. And we've been moving slowly in that direction. Um, but we still are in a situation where far too many people end up in a situation where they're in jail or prison, not because of anything that they've done, but because of who they are, because of a condition that they suffer from. Um, I'll be really interested to see how this how this report and this investigation shakes out. It'll be interesting to see how lawmakers respond to this during the coming legislative session. There will be proposals uh, this legislative session for the state to finally fund the state question 781 fund. Uh, the state, by its own estimate, has around $70 million that have been saved because of state question 780 that should have been put in the 781 fund that should be then used on mental health and substance abuse treatment services around the state of Oklahoma. So there will be an opportunity for the legislature to take that money and make those investments. And I think make a show to the Department of Justice, hey, listen, we recognize, that we recognize there's an issue. We're going to cooperate with your investigation. We'll see what you got to say. But in the meantime, we're not going to wait. We're going to make these big investments right here in Oklahoma. Neva. Well, and it is interesting and striking that you're talking about uh, going really going after a very sweeping probe. I mean, you're talking about the state. You're talking about uh, Oklahoma City. You're talking about uh, uh, the Oklahoma City Police Department. I mean, the uh, state, uh, the, the allegations about the violations of the Americans with the Disability Act. You've got the, the same with Oklahoma City, the ADA, as well as how they respond to 911 calls mm -hmm. with people that have behavioral health uh, issues. And then the Oklahoma City Police and how they comply, not only with ADA, but uh, uh, how they really uh, deal with just mental health crisis every day. And so, I mean, these are concerns. I mean, we know that Oklahoma City, I mean, they had an, a um, uh, consultant uh, that they brought in uh, and went through uh, a very extensive uh, analysis of kind of what was going on, what was needed. And when you look at the statistics, I mean, they really are staggering. I mean, one of the things that was pointed out and some of the uh, uh, articles and some of the things that have come out uh, with respect to this particular DOJ investigation is the fact that in the last three years, I think it was approaching 1,200 people 
um, that had been booked into the Oklahoma County Jail at least six times. Uh, and these uh, these were people clearly with mental health uh, issues, described as with mental health uh, issues. And 32 of those folks, I think it was, had been booked over 20 times in mm-hmm. that three-year period. Well, I mean, that sends every w- red flag and, and siren off possible with people looking at this information. So clearly, it's a... It, it's a it's kind of a story that's time has come. It's something that people are going to have to uh, dig in and respond to at every level. And you're right. I think legislators are going to have to look at this. I mean, we keep talking about we have a mental health crisis in the state, in the country, uh, and yet the resources aren't there. And let's face it, there's not even the personnel there, the clinical personnel, the, the people that, that uh, would have to be on the ground, boots on the ground with these folks dealing with these issues. They're not there. They're not there for adults. They're not there for for children. I mean, the resources are are woefully lacking, and I think that uh, there's going to have to be a very aggressive look at what is it going to take and at all levels. I mean, this is one of those conversations that can't be one-dimensional. It has to be everybody at the table because you can't fix a city problem and not uh, deal with it from the state side, not deal with it from the county side. I mean, all of the different, you know, when you start talking about uh, even some of the uh, uh, consultants' recommendations even dealt with how police should interact with juveniles. I mean, that brings in the school system. It brings in so many other components. So, I mean, this is a large conversation. It's unfortunate that we have to uh, launch into it probably more directly as a result of a Department of Justice probe. I mean, bringing the feds in is not the way you want to solve your problems at home, but that's where we're at. And so uh, we'll see, like you say, Ryan, I think they've been at this point, the information has not been forthcoming in terms of the real details. As that becomes uh, more apparent, what what they really um, uh, described as these credible allegations of discrimination, what those really are, I think we'll see um, kind of what the game plan is as it unfolds from there. The son of Governor Stitt won't face any charges over an incident in Guthrie last month. Authorities found 20-year-old John Stitt intoxicated and in possession of multiple firearms outside a haunted house on October 31st. While in custody, his mother called the highway patrol to retrieve him. Neva, why was Stitt not arrested, cited, or charged? Well, I mean, I think the I think the question is, I mean, you have a lot of incidents with juveniles um, where they're not immediately arrested. I mean, so uh, this one kind of rises to the kind of to the front page and and the conversation because of the fact that uh, the person we're talking about of the five individuals in that uh, uh, truck that night. Were, one was the governor's son, so uh, at 20 years old, uh, in um, and and someone who clearly, uh, by all of the reports, by the video cam, by his own admission, was intoxicated. The firearms uh, being an issue, and so I think it. Uh, I think it's one of those incidents that really everybody that. Uh, um, has ever been in a situation or been a parent of a of a child certainly can uh, look at this and say uh, serious serious situation. But let's keep it in the frame of reference of it's not just about you know the fact that it was the governor's son; it was the incident itself and how it played out. Right. Well, I think um, you know 
rather than saying that the governor's son got special treatment, what I want to say is that everybody should get this treatment. You know, everybody should have an interaction with law enforcement where law enforcement steps up and there's a presumption that, you know, we're going to, we're going to figure this out. You may be in trouble, but we're going to figure it out. You know, nobody, nobody was yelling and screaming. Uh, there wasn't an escalation, uh, even though there were multiple firearms present, right? I mean, so you had this situation where I think if, if it hadn't been the governor's son, which was apparent very early on in this interaction, you watch the, the, the officer video cam and, and it looks, and it's pretty apparent. They know what's going on. They've, you know, the deputy even calls in at some point and says, this is a situation I've never seen before. Um, which it's like, okay, well, let's just see the situation all over. Uh, you know, let's, let's have that presumption for everybody. Um, I, I think that it's, uh, one of the other things is that he's being offered a deferred prosecution. So there's, it's not that there wouldn't ever be any charges. He'll be, he'll have to participate in this diversion program. Again, these diversion programs should be open to many, many more people. Uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that we should try to, you know, help people, especially individual, you know, they, they offer to people that don't have any criminal records. I offer it to people that have some, some minor criminal records. I mean, expand that program, get more people in these programs where they're doing community service, where there's some restorative justice element to what it is that they've done and that they're learning a lesson and they're contributing back to their community. That's to me, this is an example of how we can operate criminal justice, uh, the system in a way that actually benefits people. It shouldn't be, uh, you know, if you're the governor's son, if you've got a state trooper that can, you know, show up at the scene and secure your firearms and, you know, drive your truck home or follow your truck home with a non-intoxicated friend driving. <clears throat> and, you know, I don't think that that should be limited to just one person. I also want to mention, you know, the DA up there, uh, Laura Thomas, uh, you know, uh, she came under a lot of fire because it was like, where are the charges? Uh, and she said, well, you know, they, people weren't really understanding how our office works here. We send these letters out to folks around deferred prosecution. Apparently they do that for everybody. Uh, but one of the things that, that the DA said up there that I thought was interesting was that she said that, um, uh, you know, talking about the, the misdemeanor, uh, that even, even a misdemeanor can be a big deal. Uh, and she said that that's because, you know, you're trying to go get a job. I mean, having that record is a big deal. Oftentimes we hear DAs talk about or complain about recent reforms that have moved things from a felony to a misdemeanor. And they'll say, oh, well, nobody listens to us because it's a misdemeanor. Uh, and it's like, well, they actually do. Misdemeanors are a big deal. And the fact that the governor's son is going to have an opportunity now to participate in a diversion program and even avoid a misdemeanor, that's a big deal. I, I wish him the best, and I hope he does well in it. And I hope that we see this for more Oklahomans. And I think that's right. I mean, I think minors, the the opportunity with local DAs to offer deferred prosecutions is very normal. Um, I mean, we see this all the time. And so there was nothing, nothing abnormal or out of line with what this particular uh, DA did. And I think you're right. I mean, the program really is an opportunity for that in, that juvenile uh, or juveniles to be able to do community service, to be able to uh, um, do the things, to be able to avoid that being a, a criminal record. And so um, no one wants to see any uh, uh, any behavior like this that get that uh, uh, is a, whether it's a one-time incident or whatever the circumstances that it becomes so impacting on on. Uh, on, on a particular youth. And so I think these are conversations that we hear all the time. This one just made the headlines uh, for the very reason that uh, we talked about, that it had a high profile, um, um, a high profile father involved <laughs> in, in, uh, in this particular instance with the governor. The outgoing leader of the U.S. House Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, says her caucus is working on getting a Cherokee delegate into Congress. The House Rules Committee held a hearing on whether to allow Kim Teehee as a non-voting member. Teehee has been awaiting appointment since she was nominated for the position in 2019 to fill a spot that's been vacant since the Treaty of New Echota in 1835. 
Ryan, do you think Tihi will get it? I, th- I think that there's a very good shot. Um, it'll be, I think it's really going to come down to our Republican leaders, whenever they take over the House uh, at the beginning of 2023, if it's not done by then, our Republican leaders are going to follow through on this commitment that I, it seems like Democratic leadership has put forward. And if they're not, then there needs to be a rush for the Democratic leadership to move this uh, process through. I don't see why we would have a lot of objection from Republican leadership, although you know it remains to be seen. But I'd, got, I'd like to suspect that you know Oklahoma's very only very own Congressman Tom Cole, who's been a, a strong defender of, of tribes and tribal issues in Congress, he'd step up to the plate within his own caucus and say, we need to get this thing done. I mean, this is a treaty that goes, like you said, Michael, it goes back to 1835. Uh, as Principal Chief uh, Hoskin has said, the the Cherokees have uh, fulfilled their obligations under the treaty with land and with lives. And they've, they've done that for nearly a century at this, or for nearly two centuries at this point. And uh, I forgot what century we were in. Uh, <laughs> uh, but for nearly two centuries, it's, yeah. it's 1922, folks. <laughs> Coming to you live from, you know, gather around the radio. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that for nearly two centuries, there's been this obligation, and the Cherokees have upheld their end. It's time for Congress to do theirs. And, and to have that representation, that voice in Congress, I think it'll be a benefit to everyone. Neva. Well, and I think the point is our treaties – uh, our treaties, like the one we're talking about, are they binding commitments? And it's been uh, Principal Chief Hoskins' contention from the moment that he took office. Uh, it was one of his uh, first actions in the first 100 days when he came in, into office uh, to move this forward. And I think uh, I, yeah, it's not something extraordinary. I mean, a delegate... Um, there are instances, as we know, I mean, we have a delegate from the District of Columbia. We, uh, we have uh, delegates from the Virgin Islands, from Guam, Puerto Rico, um, Samoa. Uh, I think there are a couple of others. So these delegates uh, are part of the are part of the makeup of Congress. I think in this instance, uh, it's important to note that a delegate can't vote on any final bill if they are uh, a member uh, in in the in the body. They can take. Uh, uh, they can take uh, uh, part in committee uh, committee work. They can even introduce legislation and make speeches. They just can't vote. That's the caveat. So um, in this instance, I think uh, with Nancy Pelosi, as she's exiting after uh, her long time as a House Speaker, made it clear that she supported this action. I kind of set the stage. Uh, and we'll see here in the closing uh, days of this year whether they actually can come through and get a vote and get it done. Or as you say, Ryan, will this be something kind of still sitting on the desk uh, when uh, Republicans uh, – uh, take control in the House uh, in January. And Ryan, one of, one of the other things about a non-voting member is the fact that, again, they would be a voice for the Cherokee people and for Native Americans altogether, even though they couldn't vote on actual legislation. Absolutely. Short of being able to vote on legislation or cast votes in committee, they can still sit on committees. They can still ask questions in committee. They can still provide testimony and make speeches on the House floor. I mean, for, for all uh, intents and purposes, they are a member of Congress without the power to vote. And so... Uh, while it would be awesome if they, that 1835 treaty had given them the power to vote, you know, if, that, if that had been part of it. I don't know how you could write that into a treaty, but, you know, who knows. Um, but even just having this representation, it was important in 1835, and it's perhaps even more important in 2022, 2023. You know, it's interesting, too. I mean, looking at uh, Teehee's resume, I mean, you have to you have to say it is an impressive resume. I mean, not only is she someone who, for the Cherokees, has been – uh, uh, head of their uh, government relations uh, teams for, I think, uh, back in early uh, 2014, I think is when she might have taken taken over. But she also, under President Obama's administration, she was the first ever 
Senior Policy Advisor for Native American Affairs uh, on the White House uh, Domestic Policy Council. So pretty impressive resume, uh, longstanding resume. She's had actually, uh, even prior to being at the White House, she worked for the Native American Caucus. So she's got over a decade uh, on the ground, uh, in the skunk work, so to speak, of really moving legislation and and doing things uh, from that perspective that give her quite an extensive uh, resume and the ability, if if uh, she does become a delegate, to really be an effective force for, from day one for uh, Native American uh, issues in the Congress. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.